Hello and welcome to Chapter 3 of Walt Disney by Neil Gabler. For Elias Disney, moving to Kansas City was another admission of defeat. He had left Chicago to escape the baneful influences of urban life, the noise and bustle and crime, but Kansas City, galvanized by the civic boosterism of Kansas City star editor William Rockhill Nelson, was burgeoning at the time they arrived. Largely as a result of Nelson's campaigning, the city had launched a $40 million boulevard system that created wide tree-lined streets, had begun, cons had begun construction on a new downtown train depot, and had nearly doubled capital investment and the value of manufactured products in less than a decade. In the first two decades of the century, the city's population doubled as well, from 163,000 to 324,000. Yet, for all its expansiveness and the sense that it was in the process of remaking and renewing itself, it was a city nonetheless. The city was not pretty, one observer noted, but it was lively in the lusty western tradition. If Kansas City was a come down from Marceline, the house there was a come down too. Located at 2706 East 31st Street in a working class section, it was so small that when relatives visited, Roy and Walt had to move to what they called the barn, a shed out back, and it was so close to the road that the family had to draw the curtains so no one could look inside. Compared to the Marceline farmhouse with its sprawling pastures, the 31st Street house had only a tiny vegetable patch and it had no indoor plumbing. For the children, its sole grace, Ruth remembered, was its proximity to the Fairmount Amusement Park, which was a fairyland that you couldn't get into. Debarred, she and Walt would stand outside its gates, staring raptly at the all-white structures. And if the city and the house were come-downs, Elias's job was even more demeaning. He listed himself in the Kansas City Directory as a clerk. In truth, he had sold the Marceline farm for $5,175 to a local family and purchased a paper route in Kansas City at $3 per customer, roughly 650 of them, but whether he was ashamed of delivering papers or there was some business advantage in doing so, he listed 18-year-old Roy as the owner of record. The route in a 20-square block area bordering the Disney's own neighborhood was reasonably lucrative by the standards of paper delivery. The section, called Santa Fe, was affluent, and the Kansas City Star itself so popular that, as Walt later said, the route book would list the people who didn't take the paper, those being rabid Democrats who resented the paper's pro-Republican editorial position. Customers paid 45 cents a week for 13 editions of the Morning Times and Evening Star, of which Elias kept 21 cents, about $31 a week. Roy received $3 of this. Walt, and Roy's recollection, got some little amount, but in Walt's recollection, it was nothing. The route was not just a means of earning a living. It became a way of life for the Disneys. Everything was subordinated to the delivery of newspapers, even when the family moved sometime in the summer or fall of 1914 to a modest two-story bungalow at 3028 Bellefontaine on a quiet tree-lined street of similarly modest bungalows they had only crossed 31st Street, compelled as they were to stay close to the route. And as their location was defined by the route, so was their time. Unlike other dealers, Elias would not buy a horse and wagon. Instead, he had push carts shaped like Roman chariots, one customer said, with down-sloping sides, and each morning, sometimes as early as 3.30, Elias, Walt, and Roy would take the carts to the distribution point, load them with papers, and head back to Santa Fe to deliver.
On Sundays, because the papers were too thick for the carts to accommodate them all, the Disneys would have to deliver one load and then return for another. This effectively pre prevented any church-going in Kansas City for Walt and Roy, though Ruth insisted that she was marched off to Sunday school each week. Only nine years old, Walt was nevertheless tethered to the route. On weekdays, he would rise early in the darkness to get his allotment of 50 papers and deliver them, the first year by foot, the second by bicycle. He ate his bre Oh, he returned home at 5.30 or 6, took a short nap, and then woke and ate his breakfast. Since he received virtually no compensation, for pocket money, he delivered medicine for a pharmacy along his route and eventually talked his father into letting him take 50 additional papers to sell for himself at a trolley stop and when other newsboys evicted him from his curb on the trolley itself. After he finished on the trolley, he headed for school, though he never completed the school day. He had to leave a half hour early to pick up the papers for the afternoon run. At 3.30 the next morning, the routine would begin again. On Saturdays, in addition to delivering the papers, he collected the fees, and on Sundays, he had the double load. At first, Walt was excited by the route. He said he enjoyed seeing the lamplighters turn the gas off every morning while he was delivering his papers and turn it on again during his afternoon circuit. But his enthusiasm quickly waned. The star had given Elias the route reluctantly, fearing he might be too old, so he was anxious not to disappoint them. Because he insisted that the papers be placed under a brick so that they would not blow away, or behind the storm doors in winter rather than just be tossed on the porch, Walt had to go up each walkway. Sometimes a customer would not see the paper between the doors and Elias would have to send Walt to re-deliver it. It got worse after Roy graduated from high school and left the route to clerk in a bank and Walt assumed his brother's route as well. Elias hired several other boys but they were often unreliable and once again Walt was dispatched to deliver the papers to homes the boys had overlooked, which is how he talked his father into getting him the bicycle. Before that, Elias made him run to houses, run to houses for missed deliveries. It was worst, of course, in winter when Walt had to trudge through the cold and snow, slipping on the icy steps, often crying at the knives of frost he said he endured. Some of the drifts into which he waded were so deep he sank to his neck. At times, the cold in his tiredness would conspire and Walt would fall asleep, curled inside his sack of papers or in the warm foyer of an apartment house to which he had delivered, and he would awaken to rediscover it was daylight and he had to race to finish the route. What added to this picture of Dickensian drudgery was that Elias took the money Walt had earned by selling his own papers on the trolley and invested it so that in addition to delivering for the pharmacy, the boy began working at a candy store during school recess to earn money to buy more papers he could sell without Elias knowing. So the upshot of it was that I was working all the time, he told an interviewer. I mean, I never had any real playtime. What playtime he had was stolen from the route. He said he played with toys he would see on the porches, then left them exactly as he found them. In six years on the route, he missed only five weeks, two with a severe cold, a third on a visit to his Aunt Josie in Hiawatha, Kansas in 1913. It stands out in memory, he wrote his aunt, because it was one of the few vacations that my mother and father ever had, and two more in 1916 when he kicked a piece of ice with a new boot he had just gotten for Christmas and was stabbed by a nail hidden in the chunk. 
He screamed for help but had to wait 20 minutes before a delivery man stopped, chopped the ice loose, and took him to a doctor who pulled out the nail with pliers and gave him a tetanus shot. Even then, he spent his recuperation helping Elias put an addition on the Bellefontaine house, a new kitchen, a bedroom, and a bathroom, finally to replace the outhouse. Decades later, in the mists of revisionism, Walt would say that the paper route helped forge his character, that he developed an appreciation of what spare time I did have and used it to great advantage in my hobbies. But in other moments, he talked of how the route and its demands, the unyielding routine, the snow, the fatigue, the lost papers, traumatized and haunted him. Forty years later, he was still awakening in a sweat with nightmares about the route that he had missed some customers and had to hurry back because Elias would be waiting at the corner and might discover Walt's dereliction. And he remembered how much of his life he surrendered to the route, how hard he had to work for so little reward, so that his brother Roy said he never even learned to catch a ball the way other boys did. Adding to the oppression of the route was the humiliation that in the beginning at least it scarcely provided enough money, forcing the Disneys to supplement their income. On his route, Walt would deliver theater bills and sell ice cream in summer, while Elias arranged for the McAllister Creamery and Marceline to ship him butter and eggs, which he then peddled to his newspaper customers. And when Elias was too ill to make the deliveries himself, he would keep Walt home from school so that Walt and Flora could make them. Even then, the Disneys scrimped. At Christmas, Flora took the cranberry decorations off the tree and made sauce out of them, and Walt said his most memorable Christmas gift was not any toy, but that pair of new leather boots with metal toe caps to replace the old worn-out shoes that he wore on the route. He said finding them under the tree was like a dream come true. Now I could swagger among my young friends with proper pride. Ruth Disney claimed that her father was not as draconian as Walt made it seem and that the children never lacked for the comforts and good things of life and some of the luxuries. But even within the family, Elias was known for his almost pathological frugality. Walt said his father walked everywhere. He was a very fast walker, so he did not have to pay for the streetcar. By another account, some years later, when a nephew asked him to come to Glendale, California to help him build a house there, Elias stayed for three months and spent only a dollar by taking advantage of realtors' offers, off of, offers of a free meal in exchange for looking at property. He always paid his bills in cash and never owed money to anyone, and he tried to enforce the same fiscal stringency on his children. Walt clearly resented having to hand over his money to his father. On one occasion, when he found a $20 bill, he paid off a fellow newsboy who threatened to tell Elias, though Roy said Elias took the boy's earnings only because he just didn't believe in letting his kids waste their money. I'll take care of it for you. I'll put it away and save it for you. The frugality, the discipline, the taciturnity, and the reproachfulness had always been constituents of Elias Disney's personality. The man who eschewed recreations, who never drank or swore and always said grace at the table, even though he now attended church infrequently, prided himself on his, on his stern morality, put the fear of God into his children, and never let anyone doubt that he was the head of the family, the one whom the Disneys had to obey. Walt found him so unapproachable and obdurate that, he said, he scarcely talked to him. As one close childhood acquaintance of Walt's observed, the whole Disney family seemed to me aloof and unbending. 
But in Kansas City, Elias had grown even more sullen and, un and unresponsive. A hard man hardened. He had, in Walt's words, become very conservative. There probably was a day when he was a driver, when he was ambitious, but then he reached an age and then they start down that little hill. Elias, at 55, was heading rapidly down that hill. One could see it in his politics. The man who had once chased populist William Jennings, William Jennings Bryan's buggy in Chicago so he could shake his hand, and the man who boasted of his socialism in Marceline, had become a Republican, though he had not surrendered his belief in class warfare. One could see it in his mood. He had even given up the fiddle, his one indulgence, when he cut his hand on a rope and was no longer able to finger the instrument. But above all, one could see it in his temper. It had always been volcanic. Even back in Chicago, Elias would send Roy to his room for some infraction, then head for the apple tree in the backyard, cut off a branch for a switch, and lay into the boy. You had to take your pants down and get a switching, Roy said. That was Dad. He'd give us impulsive wax. Walt called Elias's temper violent and said that you could not argue with him with, without braving his wrath. Even Ruth, who would always defend her father, acknowledged that he did have a temper, but said he made up for it in all other ways. Yet, however irascible Elias had been before Kansas City, he seemed to be angrier after the move, after another disappointment, and Walt, at least in his own view, became the main target of his father's ire, in part because he was so different from his father. Indeed, as he grew up, Walt Disney was the antithesis of Elias Disney, almost as if he had willed himself to be so as a form of rebellion, which he very well might have done. Where Elias was dour, Walt, despite his perceived hardships and complaints, was blithe. He was full of clowning, Roy recalled. He was very light-hearted all the time, very full of fun and gaiety. He loved to pull pranks, especially on his father. Once, he sent away for a rubber bladder that he placed under his father's dinner plate, then had Flora squeeze a concealed bulb. The other Disneys buckled in hysterics as the plate rose and fell, but Elias kept eating his soup, oblivious. Walt did say that even though his father was very slow to catch on to a gag, when he did, he would laugh until he had tears in his eyes. Walt also enjoyed masquerading, and a cousin remembered a visit to Kansas City when Walt's chief delight was in dressing up in odd clothes in order to scare my sister and brother. On another occasion, Flora answered the door to find a tall woman who asked her a lot of foolish questions. It took a few moments for Flora to recognize that the woman was wearing one of Flora's own best dresses. Walt had even borrowed a wig and hat and put on makeup to complete the disguise. It was not only Walt's puckishness that contrasted with his father's severity. Where Elias was plodding and subdued, Walt was wildly enthusiastic. Enthused about everything, said a friend. Even Elias conceded of Walt that whatever he wanted to do, he did without ever thinking of the harm. He would always go ahead with any of his ideas, whether he had the means to or not. Most people found him charming. Walt realized his effect. He was extroverted and attractive, but he also worked at it. Excuse me. Excuse me. Roy said that he always focused on whomever he was speaking with. 
that he gave the impression he took a deep personal interest and that in the family he was one he was the one who remembered everyone's birthday and always got a present he knew too that the effect would be disarming at least when walt was younger and herbert and ray were still living at home it was in roy's recollection the older boys who really took the brunt of their father's anger Walt, on the other hand, would position a chair between himself and Elias and just argue the dickens out of Dad. Dad couldn't get a hold of him. Finally, Elias would capitulate. By the time they were living in Kansas City, though, the charm no longer worked on Elias. It reached the point, Walt said, that to tell the truth with my father got me a licking. Elias was impatient with Walt, too. When they were building the Bellefontaine addition and Walt would make a mistake, Elias would try to hit him with the broadside of the saw or club him with the handle of the hammer. Usually, Walt would run to his mother until Elias cooled down. But a reckoning, a big reckoning, came when Walt was 14 and Elias upbraided him for being too insolent, then ordered him to the basement for a beating. Roy pulled Walt aside and told him to resist. Obedient to his father, Walt headed downstairs anyway. Elias followed, yelling and grabbing a hammer to strike him. But this time, impulsively rising to his brother's injunction, Walt stayed his father's hand and removed the hammer. He raised his other arm, and I held both of his hands, Walt later recalled, and I just held them there. I was stronger than he was. I just held them, and he cried. He said his father never touched him after that. Broken by work, Elias was now defeated in the family, too. It was Flora who provided the ballast for the Disneys. Flora, who managed the money for Elias, made most of the children's clothes and sewed their quilts, cooked their meals and encouraged their reading, connived with the children and always exercised restraint and an even temper, and for all these things she would be beloved in their memories. And it was Flora alone who could tease her husband out of what his children called his peevishness and calm his raging storms, though she did so carefully without confronting or countermanding him. Walt said he could not confide in her because she couldn't keep it from Dad if I told her. Still, he thought her saintly. But if Flora was the family's peacemaker, Roy O. Disney was its protector, or at least Walt's protector. Walt was never close to either Herbert or Ray, who had left years earlier, though they both lived in Kansas City, and he referred to them as strangers to me all my life. Indeed, Herbert had married a local girl and had had a daughter of his own. Roy seemingly had no more in common with Walt than the older brothers did, other than the fact that he still lived at home. He was eight years Walt's senior and hardly a comrade in arms, nor did he share Walt's temperament. Though nowhere near as doleful as his father, whom he closely resembled physically, he was not an enthusiast or prankster or extrovert like Walt either, and he had little of Walt's appeal. But Roy and Walt formed a very close relationship, so close that Walt seemed to regard him less as a brother than as a surrogate father, confiding in him as he could never have confided in Elias. They might argue, but when night fell, they would crawl into bed together and trade stories. It was easy to see what Walt got from this alliance, support. But Roy willingly assumed the paternal role, feeling as close to Walt as Walt felt to him. He would buy Walt and Ruth toys out of his earnings from the bank where he clerked, or bring them candy, or announce that they were going to the movies. He would play horseshoes or pinocle with them. Roy never explained why he was so protective of his younger brother, other than to say that he felt Walt was too open, trusting, and naive, and needed someone to watch over him. 
in effect, that he had no common sense. Years later, Roy would tell about the old television inventor, Lee DeForest, who had been cheated out of what was due him and who was forced in his declining years to catch money from a friend at the Disney studio. I really believe, Roy said, that Walt would have gotten mired down with crooks. He'd have been easy prey for somebody to twist him up and take him like they took Lee DeForest, and that's what I gave him, a shield. But it was not all self-sacrifice. Roy gained, too. Walt provided what Roy did not have and could not generate himself. Roy fed off of Walt's energy and buoyancy and even recklessness. Walt was the vicarious outlet for a measured and cautious young man. Walt was Roy's own escape. Meanwhile, Walt found his outlet for release outside his family two doors up the street. The Pfeiffers were, Walt Pfeiffer would say, Walt's real family, and their house was what Walt later called, after Uncle Remus, his laughing place. My own family were all pretty unfrivolous, hard-working people, Walt wrote a correspondent, expressing his constant longing for a more exuberant environment. There was nothing unhappy about them. They just weren't used to having fun. But this wasn't so with the Pfeiffers. Whatever they did, they had the best time doing it, and they were always together. Walt Pfeiffer was more direct. Old Elias didn't like anything that had any, anything to do with entertainment. He was kind of churchy, as we called it in those days. He'd read the Bible. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Have to clear my throat. Hmm. In effect, the Pfeiffers adopted Walt, and he escaped into them. Walt had met Walt Pfeiffer in fifth grade at the Benton School, even before the Disneys had moved to the same block on Bellefontaine as the Pfeiffers. They had become casual friends then, but the relationship was cemented later when Walt Pfeiffer came down with the mumps, and Walt Disney, dismissing Mrs. Pfeiffer's warnings and saying he had already had the mumps himself, came over and kept the bedridden Pfeiffer company, teaching him how to draw. The two soon became inseparable, spending their time drawing together or playing with Pfeiffer's dog, Brownie. The deeper bond between them, however, was not proximity. It was exhibitionism. As his masquerading attested, Walt Disney loved to perform, and so did Walt Pfeiffer, a moon-faced boy as extroverted as his friend. In fact, the Pfeiffers were a whole family of performers. Mr. Pfeiffer was the treasurer of the local United Leather Workers Union, but his real love was show business and his son called him a ham. At the Disney house, Elias, thinking that Walt might become a musician, insisted that Walt take violin lessons and would slap his elbow when he stuck it out incorrectly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Walt claimed to have a tin ear, and the lessons ended in mutual disgust after a few months. But what this punitive at but what was punitive at the Disney house was joyful at the Pfeiffers. Walt Pfeiffer's sister Kitty would play the piano while the others sang, or she would accompany her brother and Walt while they performed comedy sketches. Walt Disney so enjoyed these sessions that at night he would sneak out the window. He was ordered to bed at nine o'clock so he could get up for the paper route and head over to the and head over to the Pfeiffers for the fun, then sneak back. I went to bed tired, he said, but knowing the past hour and a half had been the nicest part of the day. Already, Walt had been performing at school. I'd do anything to attract attention, he would say. In the fifth grade, he fashioned a stovepipe hat out of cardboard and blackened it with shoe polish, dabbed a wart on his cheek, wrapped himself in a shawl, and came to class as Abraham Lincoln. He had even memorized the Gettysburg Address to recite. 
Delighted, Walt's teacher said he was going to be an actor because I squinted my eyes on certain passages and called in the principal, who then paraded Walt into every classroom. Walt also staged plays with his classmates. I always got something where I could bring in 50 kids because the kids would always laugh at other kids. I'd get laughs that way. Soon, the two bad Walters, as Pfeiffer and Disney called themselves, were performing routines at school. With Mr. Pfeiffer instructing and rehearsing him, rehearsing them, they began entering talent contests staged at the local Agnes Theater, and depending on how Walt told the story, either won quite a few of them or once split a 25-cent fifth prize. Pfeiffer said that Walt had to slip out of the bedroom window for these forays too, so Elias would not know, because we were kind of afraid of him. Some of the time, they did what they called a Dutch act, playing Hans and Mike. Walt Disney would dress in Elias's old deacon's coat from his church days, and Walt Pfeiffer would decorate his jacket with various badges and medals that his father had collected from conventions. They would sing songs and tell jokes. My sister is a princess. How do you know your sister's a princess? Because she wears a princess slip. My brother wears a union suit, but that doesn't make him belong to a union. Later, they... Later, they became fascinated with the film comedian Charlie Chaplin, whose popularity was soaring at that time. The boys would see each of Chaplin's films, not once, but several times, studying them carefully and then discussing his technique. That changed the act. Walt Disney now played Chaplin. He could do it to perfection, a boyhood acquaintance remembered, even recalling Walt kicking that cigarette behind himself in one of Chaplin's signature moves. Walt Pfeiffer played the Count, Chaplin's nemesis. We always got a little more applause than someone else imitating Chaplin because we were younger and it was a team of us, Walt said. But even if the act was amateurish and the applause as much for youthful effort as for talent, Walt Disney found himself hooked on performing. Hooked on the acknowledgement of performing as he had been hooked in Marceline on the acknowledgement of his drawing. These performances, he said, reacted on me like the taste of blood on a lion. In other words, I liked acting, liked the applause, liked the cash prizes that were being handed to us, liked the weird smells and weirder sights behind the scenes. He even began to think of acting as a career. In entertainment, Walt Disney had found another escape. Even before he began considering a career in show business, school had become an afterthought. As in Marceline, he had been placed in the same excuse me, class as his younger sister, and both, due, the, due to the vicissitudes of the Kansas City school system, had been forced to repeat the second grade, which meant he was well over a year older than most of his classmates. The paper route did not help. Walt often dozed in class, and teachers later described him as courteous, but also sleepy, preoccupied, and seldom more than lukewarm about the funny business of the three R's. One teacher placed him in the second dumbest seat in the classroom. Walt, who was clearly quick-witted, attributed his inattentiveness to his being creative rather than uninterested and called himself a dreamer. A classmate said he was always imagining things. Walt admitted, I'd sit in class and I'd be way off. He was also something of an iconoclast, even if it was only to attract attention. He once caught a field mouse, tied a string around it, and brought it to class. When one of his classmates screamed, the teacher rushed to his desk and slapped him on the cheek. Walt, though, was anything but resentful. I loved you all the more for it, he wrote the teacher years later, suggesting just how attention-starved he really felt. 
and when every other boy in his seventh grade class took manual arts, Walt opted instead for domestic science, essentially homemaking with the girls, carrying a little blue bag with his supplies. Even Walt Pfeiffer found this unusual. The kids used to make fun of him carrying this bag around, Pfeiffer remembered. That kind of shows you what... That kind of shows you that he was a little out of the ordinary. But Ruth said that rather than feeling casened, Walt loved being the only boy in his class. He used to come home and tell all the, and tell all about the fun he had there. It may have been a sign of just how much Walt desired a sense of community, of belonging, especially after losing the support he felt in Marceline, that he would look back on his days at the Benton School fondly and often, not for the education he received there, but for the warmth he felt. He recalled the principal, James Cottingham, who thought nothing of wandering into a classroom and interrupting the lesson with a story, and he recalled the teachers, especially Miss Daisy Beck, the one who slapped him for having brought the mouse, who demonstrated their concern. Even though Walt was, by his own description, a laggard, he would continue to correspond with several of them until their deaths. Of Daisy Beck particularly, he cited the great patience, understanding, and incredible faith she lavished upon him. The paper route prevented Walt from participating in after-school activities, but he frequently recounted how Beck, who coached the school's championship track team with Cottingham, urged him one recess to try out. Walt wound up winning a medal on the 60-pound relay team, and probably because he was never much of an athlete, he always cherished the memory and Beck's role in it, never failing to cite it whenever he discussed his days at Benton. Most of the time, though, young Walt Disney was secluded in his own world, away from the Rao and Elias and school. The Pfeiffers and performing provided one escape from his vexations. Drawing continued to provide another, more powerful one. He had never stopped drawing. In school, he propped up his books as a blind so he could draw. He spent hours decorating the margins of his textbooks with pictures and then entertaining his classmates by rifling them to make them move. One classmate recalled him going to the blackboard and drawing a perfect likeness of Teddy Roosevelt in chalk, while one teacher remembered him drawing flowers during an art assignment and animating them. Always encouraging, Daisy Beck had him draw the posters for school events, and Walt Pfeiffer said that he began drawing cartoon advertisements on glass slides for the Agnes Theater. After school, after the route, while most of the boys were playing basketball in the schoolyard, he, Walt Pfeiffer, and one or two other boys interested in art would sit on a stone wall and draw. When a group of neighborhood boys built a clubhouse, Walt decorated it with his drawings. At home, he took his father's appeal to reason and practiced redrawing the front page cartoons of Capital and Labor until I had them all down pat. This was what his Benton classmates remembered, Walt Disney drawing. He drew constantly. He drew even though it was not always socially acceptable to draw. It was kind of sissy for a guy to draw, Walt Pfeiffer admitted, but that did not deter Walt Disney. He drew and drew well for a boy his age. He drew until it became the primary source of his identification at Benton. Walt Disney, the artist. Even in our old seventh grade in Miss Beck's room, a classmate recalled, we all knew you'd really be an artist and genius of some kind. And when I heard once that you couldn't draw, I sure set them straight, because even in the seventh grade, that's all you did. And it was not only at the Benton School that Walt Disney was gaining attention for his art. He hung around a barber shop at 31st Street on his paper route, just around the corner from his house, idly drawing cartoons. 
Impressed, the proprietor, Bert Hudson, offered Walt a free haircut in exchange for the drawings and later, when Walt did not need a cut, 10 or 15 cents. More important for Walt, Hudson hung the pictures in the window in a special frame, just as Doc Sherwood had hung the picture of Rupert. It was a great stimulant to me to know my efforts were appreciated, Walt would write Hudson more than 30 years later. And boy, how I look forward to the showing of that weekly, or was it monthly, cartoon in your shop. One acquaintance remembered the shop being plastered with drawings, and a neighbor said he often watched Walt sitting outside the shop drawing cartoons on a blackboard. Even Elias admitted that the drawings became an attraction. The neighbors would go down to the shop to see what young Disney had this week. Obsessed with drawing and encouraged by the attention he was getting, Walt would accompany his father to the Kansas City Star office when Elias picked up papers or conducted business there and head up to the art department or engraving room to watch the cartoonists, occasionally even receiving instruction from the art director, Mr. Wood. Once, he was even emboldened enough to ask for a job, but he was told the paper was downsizing at the time and no position was available. It was a sad day, believe me, Walt recalled. During this same period, Walt, for the first time, sought formal instruction. Though Elias had no understanding of Walt's passion and no affinity for art whatsoever, when Walt turned 14, he did permit him to attend Saturday classes at the Kansas City Art Institute and the YMCA building downtown, where the boy not only drew but learned the rudiments of sculpture and casting. Just as, he has con just as he had contemplated a career as a performer when he was receiving accolades for his act, he began to think of becoming a newspaper cartoonist now that he was receiving accolades for his drawings. He admitted that by the time he graduated from the Benton School, the school went only to the seventh grade, he had lost interest in anything but drawing and performing, and that getting through the seventh grade was one of the toughest trials of my whole limited span of schooling. As Walt received his diploma in June 1917, Cottingham, who made a brief quip about each graduate, said of Walt, "He will draw you if you. He will draw you if you like." Underscoring just how much art had become Walt's identity, Walt even drew two pictures of girls in broad-brimmed hats in the style of the famous illustrator Charles Dana Gibson in his sister's graduation book. Along with the diploma, Cottingham also awarded him a $7 prize for a comic character Walt had drawn. I am still prouder of that money than I have ever earned than any I have ever earned since, Walt told the Kansas City Journal Post nearly 20 years later. I really think that's what started me as an artist. Then Elias Disney escaped again. For several years, he had been investing his money and Walt's earnings, too, in a jelly and fruit juice company in Chicago named Ozell. In March, he sold the paper route. By one account, he made $16,000 on the sale and bought additional shares of Ozell with the intention of moving back to Chicago to head up construction and maintenance at the company's factory, obviously feeling that this time he might finally find the success that had so long evaded him. At 57, this was almost certainly the last opportunity he would have to rival his brother. When Elias and Flora left, Walt stayed behind to assist the man who had bought the route and lived with his brother Herbert, who had moved into the Bellefontaine house with his wife and year-old daughter. Once the transfer had been completed, Walt, at either Roy's or Herbert's suggestion, signed up with the Van Noyes Interstate News Company and spent the rest of the summer as a butcher selling papers, candy, soda, and tobacco to passengers on the Santa Fe train route between Kansas City and Spiro, Oklahoma. 
Roy, who provided the $15 bond for his brother and who had been a butcher himself one summer, thought it would be educational for him. As it turned out, it was. Though Walt just liked the idea of being on a train, sometimes he would bribe the engineer with a plug of tobacco so that he could ride in the coal car. Other times he would sit in the yard staring at the engines and dreaming of firing them up. He got to see Colorado and Oklahoma, and filling in for other butchers ventured as far east as Mississippi. He was especially struck by the Pullman sleeper cars, and years later, according to one screenwriter who worked for him, would reminisce about the elegance of this plush and velvet world he glimpsed for the first time. He got a brief education in the rough-and-tumble business world, too. One time, a group of soldiers to whom he had sold soda refused to give him back the bottles on which he made his profit. Walt had to get the conductor to force them to pay. Another time, Walt was replenishing his basket during a stop at Lee's Summit, Missouri, only to return and find that the cars had been detached from the engine at the station and his bottles had gone with them. He also claimed that there was finagling and that he was given rotten fruit in his hamper, but Roy chalked the losses up to Walt's own carelessness. He'd go up and down the train, leave his locker unlocked, and when he'd come back, find a lot of empty Coke bottles and some of the candy gone. Walt admitted he ate up his profits. After two months, he resigned. By that time, Roy was gone. With America having entered World War I that spring, he had joined the Navy just 14 days after Walt's graduation. By summer's end, Walt was gone too, reunited with his parents in Chicago. He would always say that even though he was a Chicagoan by birth, he was a Missourian by temperament and usually pointed to his childhood in Marceline as the foundation of his life, but his six years in Kansas City were no less formative. If Marceline had been where Walt Disney forged his fantasy, Kansas City was where he forged his personal mythology, what one Disney scholar would call the opening chapters of an American success story where good triumphed over evil and progress overcame adversity. Though Ruth in particular would contradict her brother's somber vision of the Disney family, and though Roy himself, who confirmed Walt's depiction of their father's distance and temper, would nevertheless call the Disney family's home life wonderful and dismiss contentions that Walt was abused or neglected, Walt, a blatant self-dramatist, would fasten on would fasten on the deprivations of his youth in Kansas City, on the hardships of the paper route, on the obduracy of his father, on the need to find release on the stage or the drawing pad. True or not, he conceptualized his early life in Dickensian terms, with the kindnesses of the Pfeiffers, or Daisy Beck or Bert Hudson relieving the gloom. For Walt Disney, Marceline had to be recaptured, but Kansas City, the grid against which his life would rub, had to be remembered to show from what he had risen. In Kansas City, Walt Disney not only began to channel his escape, he began to create the idea of Walt Disney, the idea of someone who beat poverty, hardship, and neglect. Wonderful Reads is a great free reading podcast, isn't it? If you agree, you can support the podcast by sharing it with friends and family, posting about it on social media, joining our Facebook group, and purchasing Sierra Spencer's books. To join our Facebook group, go to https semicolon backslash backslash www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash nine zero one two seven two 
0704578018 backslash that's https semicolon backslash backslash www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash 901272070457801. If you would like to purchase our current book, go to https semicolon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash dots dash horizon dash collection dash sierra s-i-e-r-r-a dash spencer s-p-e-n-c-e-r backslash the book is purchasable at https semicolon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash thoughts dash horizon dash collection dash sierra s-i-e-r-r-a dash spencer s-p-e-n-c-e-r backslash